Coming up on the Creativity in Motion podcast, renowned batik artist Dr. Leo Twiggs shares lessons about creativity and being an artist from his illustrious 50-year career. One of the things that every artist knows is that you have to paint with your feelings and that what you paint and the way you paint is your voice. Here we go. Hi, my name is Chris Hollow. And I'm Mark Mosry, and this is episode number 11 of Creativity in Motion, a podcast about creativity where we talk with creatives of all kinds to find out why they create and especially how they overcome creative obstacles. In this episode, we're talking with Dr. Leo Twiggs about how he expresses himself through his art. Before we get started, we'd like to tell you about our sponsor, NOSI College of Art. Nosy College opened in 1973 as a fine art school and has transformed into Tennessee's only private art college. They offer bachelor's degree programs in commercial illustration, graphic design, video and film, and photography. Starting in September of 2021, they'll begin offering a brand new culinary arts associate's degree. Nosy has a beautiful 55,000 square foot facility that was built with the artistic student in mind. It includes computer labs, production suites, photography and video studios, and a fully stocked equipment cage. Everything students need to get creative. If you want to know more about NOSI College of Art, visit their website, nosi.edu. That's N-O-S-S-I dot E-D-U, where you can see degree program details, faculty information, and samples of student work. Today, we continue our On the Road series in Orangeburg, South Carolina with Dr. Leo Twiggs an award-winning batik artist. He received his master's in art from New York University and his doctorate in art from University of Georgia. He's had over 150 one-person shows in countries all over the world and most recently completed a series of nine paintings titled Requiem for Mother Emmanuel, commemorating the nine victims who were killed at the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Charleston. Welcome to the show, Dr. Twiggs. Thank you for having me. We can't tell you much we appreciate you letting us come into your studio. I mean, we're looking around at all the things you have on the wall and just we're getting we're getting to know you. I mean, we've never met before, but we're getting to know you a little bit based on what's on your wall, <laughs> which is really cool. Well, that's what an artist should do. You express yourself so that people who really haven't seen you before try to figure out how, where is he coming from? Right. And I'm sitting next to a, lot, a bunch of your work that is in between two shows. Yes. And this is the Messages from Home series. Yes. And it is heading where next? It's going to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And how long will it be there? the Sheep and Museum for a month. A month. Do you like having your work kind of stop back by your place? Well, this, this is stop by, and that's happened before. Uh, but, you know, it's, that seldom happens. Because they go and they go on a, on a road trip, and sometimes you don't see them. I think as an artist, uh, what's really um, sometimes um, heartwarming is for your works to go places and people write you back saying that they've met them. Because I think work's a part of your life, and that's a small part of you that's on a wall. 
And if somebody writes and says, I just ran into an exhibit and I love what I see and I want to see more of your work, that's heartwarming. How often do you get the chance to go to the openings and be be part of the opening? Well, until COVID, I went to all of them uh, because I think that when you go to an opening, people get a chance to see something new that you've done. And then you get a chance to see their reaction to what you've done. Mm-hmm. And sometimes see familiar faces. Of course, always. So my wife's a graphic designer, and she is also an artist in several mediums. So I had an idea what batik was. But I did a little research and found out it's more complicated than what I thought. Can you tell us a little bit about batik and maybe how you got started? And you've been in batik for a long time. Did you start with other mediums and kind of work your way into batik, or have you always been... At Claflin University, where I did my undergraduate work, we worked in oils. And then uh, we worked in acrylics when acrylics came along. And I was introduced to Batik at the Art Institute of Chicago. And at the Art Institute, we were doing craftsy stuff. But I loved the color quality of Batik. And I said one day, what if I try to paint with it? Well, there have been paintings in Batik, but there have been hangings, wall hangings. I wanted to do more. I wanted to see whether I could make Batik a painting just like any other painting, but utilize its qualities, its cracker qualities as part of my composition. And that was difficult to do because I eventually stopped stretching them around frames and mounting them to board so that I could work on them on the board as well as the dipping. And one of the things that every artist knows is that you have to paint with your feelings and that what you paint and the way you paint is your voice. Just like uh, Ray Charles has a voice, uh, Muddy Waters has a voice, the way you paint, and the things that you put in your paintings and how you do your painting is your voice. And so I was painting in acrylics and everything else. And then I found out that I needed a voice that says something about where I'm from, what I've done, and the South mainly because I grew up here. We've been talking a little bit about that and, you know, using your voice. And we had a, you know, as we're driving around the Southeast where we sometimes was strike up a conversation and we were realizing, I was realizing, I don't know that I have a voice in, in what I do. And maybe part of that is because what I do is more commercial and it's, it's not, I'm not expressing my feelings. I'm not expressing my point of view necessarily. So it's a little foreign to me. And I think that's pretty amazing that you get the chance to do that. And it made me want to try to figure out how to work my voice into the things that I'm doing. Well, I think voice means the unique way that you say what you say. And uh, with batik, batik has a crackle effect that you could utilize. And you could put wax on, crush it between your fingers. And then when you crush it and you dip it in dice, it makes uh, an antiquing effect. And that antiquing effect to me was so much like growing up in the South in a home where there were dilapidated places and uh, seeing the peeling of the wood on the walls and 
understanding that antiquing is an aging effect and that sooner or later we all go. And so I found batik a way to say what I wanted to say in a way that I could not do with paint. And that brings us to the Confederate flags. I always saw the flag as an image of a time gone by. And so how do you express that the war is not still on, that it's gone with the wind, as Margaret Mitchell wrote? And so I started doing these flags, and they were all flags with the edges off. It was like somebody opening a trunk and seeing this flag that maybe their grandfather, great-grandfather had, and it's crumbling un- under their fingers, and but it's the flag. And I was fascinated by that. I was fascinated by when I went to University of Georgia, driving there every day and going through these towns, especially on Confederate Memorial Day, and seeing flags up. You believed that the war was still going on. And so this fascination that we have in the South with an era that's gone, but we still cling to it. And one of the things that I found out more than anything else by living in the South and growing up here is the contradictions. What you see is not what you get. Because when you ride around and you look at the mysticism of the South, you know, that, that moss from the trees and that nostalgic view and the thing that everybody who comes to the South loved, the landscape. But underneath that landscape is the blood and sweat and tears of slaves. And I lived in an area in Saint, near St. Stephen's where 4,000 slaves were living there because the landowner, the slave owner, had a very big plantation. And every night I'd go to bed thinking, hey, my ancestors' blood and tears are in the grounds that we were walking every day. I didn't realize how much it was then, but if I went away to college and started studying about my area, then I found out. When you describe the crackle and the thickness of the wax and how it's immersed in the dye and how it relates to the dilapidated buildings and the texture of the South, all I can think is I want to touch that. Yeah. I want to feel that. Yeah. You know, the difference between using dyes and using paint is that paint lay on the surface, whereas dyes seep into the surface. And so if you put one color in and you put another color over that, you might put yellow there. And if you put blue over it, then you get green and you, you mix these multitudes of colors that you don't even know you're getting. And what happens with that is that color can create dimensions. I remember when I had my show at Spoleto in Charleston, people came up to me and said, did you know that your flag seemed to be floating? That the, that the X's of the flag seemed to be floating. I would never see that, but it does. And I think that when we look at a painting, you notice that if it's a big painting, people stand back to look at it so they can, can, can see all of it. With Batik, People will stand back and look at it, and they'll go closer and closer and closer because the closer you get, the more you get into the work. So you, you go beyond just the surface, but you go into the surface, and it draws you in. And that's why I find it so fascinating. You know, when I started doing the flags, 
People say, what you doing, flags? African-American. In fact, CBS did a piece on an African-American who paints flags. He's painted, you know, 80 of them over his lifetime. And amazingly, when I started doing the flags, even as I did them, I never got blowback. I never got blowback. And the thing about that is when I ask people why, because I want to know if you paint a flag and you're African-American or if you paint a flag in the South um, and it doesn't look like the flag that they they normally see, then they want to know, you know, what is that about? And somebody said to me once, he says, your paintings don't shout, they whisper. And I thought about it. When you look at Batik paintings next to other paintings, they're soft and subtle. And I think by whispering, you can say things that if you say it out loud, would create a commotion. And I think that's what I like about my work. That is whispers. It, it, it says, when I talk about, for instance, contradictions, if we just use that as a model, what I'll do is I'll paint a flag. And on that flag, I'll use the daintiness that we associate with femininity, the sweetness that we associate with something nice. And while you're looking at the sweetness and the niceness of that, then you realize that it's a Confederate flag that was used in slave people. That kind of goes back to the idea where you back up. People normally would back up to take in the entire work, and then they might see the flag. Then they get drawn in by the whisper of your voice to look at the details, and they forget the layers upon layers that make up the thing that they're looking said at. said it perfectly. That's true. That's true. And, and, um, and I think that in the South, as an African-American, one of the things that I have been able to do because of the whispers is to get messages out there that others would not get. And, and I think it's what I've looked at, some of the things that I've looked at is targets. And my targets are not the targets that other artists have done. It's about how African-Americans are targeted. I remember uh, uh, John McCain, when he was running against Barack Obama, he said, you know who said something like that? That one. And when you and and I don't know that he realized what he was saying. That one. When you say that one, it takes away the humanity. It's not a human being. It's that one. It's like going out to a a a, a cattle farm and say, "I want that one." And so all of these things are things that I think about when I'm. So I did a painting called that one. Uh, <laughs> And so I find in my paintings that I get, I, I get it from the things that I know, the things that I felt growing up. My mom was always going to the store with my grandmother and looking at the materials. She loved the patterns, much like what you see here. Uh, and those things also took me to, Batik also was a way that I could recreate that. I know that for myself, when I walk through most anywhere, Ikea, doesn't matter. You know, walk through somewhere. I like to touch, when I see something, I like to touch it. Yeah. I mean, and I know it's, you know, in the age of COVID, yeah. <laughs> that's probably not the best idea, but I like to touch, I'm tactile, like different papers and different fabrics. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I just, I'm really into 
the way things feel, the, the touch of fabric. When you're choosing the work that you're about to start, do you have, and this is a cut, sort of a bad technical question, I'll admit right off the bat, do you have a certain fabric that you like to work on or do you sort of, does it depend on the work that you're doing, what you choose? Well, the, the, the batik is, is there. I mean, I've been experimenting that with that for years because with, when you're working with batik, one of the things you do, you have to know color. You have to know what colors goes with what color because things like that. But when I'm doing that, I'm also looking at the fabric because in my experiments over the years, I have found that if I use fabric that's very tightly woven, then I can get linear qualities in it and I can control my dyes better. But sometimes I don't want that. I want the dyes to bleed, to give you a kind of soft effect. So I, I, I select the surface that I'm going to work on, whether it, but it's always cotton and it has to be um, 100% cotton. Uh, I choose a surface by how I want the, the work to appear. And sometimes when I started early on, you know, I dip it in a dye solution and it ruins the whole thing. Because if I'm painting about the blues, it has to look like the blues. And sometimes it just gets too green or too whatever. And I used to just throw it away. And people tell me now, where did you throw it? <laughs> I don't know. But it was really experimenting. And I think what strikes me right now is that there's nobody that I know that's doing what I'm doing with fatigue. And I was just looking at a magazine called Surface Magazine. And Surface Magazine is about surfaces and what paintings, are, what people are doing with surfaces. And I was noted along with one other guy as a pioneer of using batik in this very innovative way. And I've had people over the years where I've done workshops said, you know, I'd like to learn to do that. That's really, and then they come back later on when I see them and say, I can't do that. You know, <laughs> or it's too time consuming because it takes me about, oh, four weeks to do a big painting mm. or even more. Um, two weeks to even do a small painting as you see in the room here because you have to let it dry every time you put the dye on it and you have to be patient. And we live in an era where people are not patient. You know, digital era uh, with acrylics. One of the things they used to say with acrylics is if you don't like it, you can come 15 minutes and jesso it over and start again. Uh, but batik, because it's dye, it's unforgiving. And so you have to have in mind what you want to do. And you have to be ready for improvisation. I like batik because it's like jazz. You know, you put something down and you feel something else and you go that way and you feel something else and you go that way. And in the end, it reveals itself to you. That's cool. You know, as, as I said, we've never met before 30 minutes ago. And uh, from what I can gather from you already, and people can probably hear it in your voice, you seem like nothing but patience. <laughs> like you seem like, I'm just taking a wild guess here, but you seem super patient. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's because I've been working with this medium for so long is that I know that, you know, if this isn't it, if I work long enough, it'll be it. 
sometimes I'll stop my painting at, you know, I work late at night. I like to do that two o'clock in the morning because you don't see the, the windows and everything is gone. And so when I'm working, I can leave a painting and go to bed and close my eyes and see every inch of it saying that I need to work more in this part. It's like I can look over it and see and read every part of it and say, this is what I need to do. And then I come back the next day and then I see it and I add it and it works. But then one of the things you have to worry about with dye is there's so many kinks. One of the kinks is that when dye is wet, it looks different from when it's dry. Uh, Now my lights are fixed so that at, uh, that they, they give off a special light that doesn't change. When I first started, I used to be under fluorescent light. Next day, everything was ghastly. <laughs> but these are color-corrected lights. But it is the solitude that, if you notice the space, I got a garage in between the space. And so it's away from the house. That couch over there, my wife sometimes comes and sits down on it, but she doesn't stay out there because I'm not very conversational. <laughs> session was when I'm, I'm, I'm painting, I'm all into my work. And I've been, you know, blessed to have people look at my work and see things and feel things that they never did before. And I think the way it's done, the medium that it's done in, has a lot to do with that. When you were talking about having patience, Batik doesn't care if you're impatient because it just won't work. That's right. You have to, it's like you have an agreement. Mm -hmm. You have to have an agreement Mm -hmm. with the process and do it on its terms. Yeah. And the work that we do is a little bit like that too, despite how we may want the film or the video or the image to turn out, you have to do it the way that it will turn out. Yes. And respect that. You have to respect the medium because there are things that I know I can do and things I can't do. And I know that there are things I can do that a person with paint could never do. For instance, they could never take the, the, the crackle that I use in the use my flags and recreate that in paint. Or sometimes I paint on patterned fabric, slightly patterned so that when you look at the fabric, you see the painting, but below the painting is a, a pattern. And the pattern, I have to adjust the paint so that the pattern and the paint work together. Another layer. Yeah, another layer. Has It seems like batik is probably a process and a technique that has been largely untouched by the digital age. There, is so, there are so few things that digital technology has not, you know, touched, much less transformed. Mm-hmm. And do you find that to be the case? I think so. I think uh, people are not used to seeing painting like that. What happened, people, I get the question all the time, how is that done? How do you get that? How do you do that? And then I have to talk to them about batik because nobody else is doing it. You can't read anything about it. Um, They just know that it doesn't look like anything they've seen. But it works for me because when it doesn't look like anything they've seen, then they are inquisitive on that level, saying that, um, I wonder how this is done. And then they get drawing into the work, what is done. People, people like to see things that they haven't seen before because 
again, thanks to the digital era, so many things look the same. Yeah. If you, you see the same thing over and over yeah. again. And when you encounter something that is unfamiliar, but still so interesting and, and different, you, it, you just automatically, it stands out, right? You automatically want to know more about it. Well, as a painter, and I went to NYU doing the abstract expressionist era where people were throwing paint all around the place and all of that. And, and there are some people who, during my lifetime, have had a, an impact on what I do. Uh, and one was my professor, Arthur Rose, who was here. I, he was the first artist I ever met. And he was a guy who, his subject was whatever was happening in the news. Uh, and he was an artist, but he was also an art professor. And so I became an art professor and an artist because I had to do that in my spare time. But then I went to NYU and Hill Woodruff, who became my professor there. Uh, we became great friends. He kind of treated me like a son almost. And he said, you know, we African-Americans never use images from our culture. He said, if you look at Picasso and the Guernica, he uses the horse and the bull, and we don't use uh, images from our culture, and we need to do that. So he said, we got, we've done that in our blues, in our jazz, in our spirituals, but we need to do that. I always remember that. And the next person who was so influential in my, uh, my work was at the University of Georgia. I mean, I thought I'd been to Audience in Chicago and New York University. I got to Georgia because I got a federal grant. So when I got there, people said, how you get here? I said, U.S. grant. And I was the first African-American to receive a doctorate in art uh, from the University of Georgia. And I met Lamar Dodd. And one of the, and one of the persons that I met that was so influential in my life was a fellow man, Edmund Burke Fellman. He was the kind of professor who you went to his class and you come out and say, why didn't I think of that? Uh, but I did, he did, I did my dissertation under him and I did my dissertation on teaching disadvantaged, mostly African-American kids, how to look creatively and perceptively at art. And the things I learned is how people looked at art. And, it, and Feldman's ideas of how do you, change ideas into images was so impacted in my life. In fact, what he did, he taught me how to think about what I was thinking about. All the things that we've talked about, about the batik and making it work and that, he just taught me how to think because I started experimenting with batik long before Georgia, but I couldn't do it while I was at Georgia because um, I was painting and batik takes all the stuff that you see in the studio but he taught me how to think about what I'm thinking about. And I think an artist just can't paint out of the blue sky. You must have a philosophical ground. And my philosophical ground is James Baldwin, who said, the purpose of art is to lay bare the questions that have been hidden by the answers. Oh, man. And, and to me, that was... <laughs> That's good. Uh, but hit by the ant because, for instance, in the South, I remember um, when you when you ask people about the Civil War and secession, and you say the Civil War was about slavery. 
So no, it wasn't about slavery. It's about, it's about state rights. It was about state rights state right to hold slaves. But you see, when you get these questions that hide the answers, uh, and especially you live in a, a place like, like the South, um, it, is, it became really my motto for how I approach my work. Because I think, as I said before, when you think about the contradictions, and that's what contradictions are, you know, you got to read, as my mom says, between the lines. Are you are you still teaching? No, I retired in '98. Do you do any sort of workshops or any? I mean, uh, can I just I just want to interject. Okay, I assure you, you are still teaching. <laughs> I'm learning I've, right now. I've learned a lot <laughs> already. Well, you know, I I do I you know I'll do a lecture every now and then. But look, when I came up to be an artist. I couldn't go on to school and just become an artist because you'd starve to death. And so I went on academia and then I spent oh, 47 years in academia, uh, running a museum, all aspects of it, serving on too many boards. And then finally I said, when I retired that I am going to get a studio at work. And the amazing thing is the studio that you're in now was built with paintings. Uh, I did a paint, a series of paintings, just like Mother Emanuel, but very early on in 1980 on the hurricane, Hurricane Hugo. Mm-hmm. And you probably saw that online. Mm-hmm. And uh, a, 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 a commercial banker in Greenville bought the whole series. His name was Jack. And so when people come in here, I said, this is the house that Jack built. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. And so I was able, I was able to, to build a studio and because at school I, I had a studio, but it was small and people would come in. And so I devoted my whole career afterward to being an artist. And within a year after I started it, I knew why Van Gogh didn't go <laughs> and why Picasso never worked because it's a whole new ballgame when you can devote your whole life to something. And when you get to do it in the afternoons, in the mornings, in the evenings, or something like that. I guess that's the next question is when you mentioned that you like to work at night. I think a large part of being an artist is, is being able to force yourself to get to work. I mean, a lot of people would just not work. Like it's, you sort of have to put yourself in the position yeah. to get to work. Yeah. And so what do you do to kind of motivate yourself to clock in, as it were. Well, uh, my first professor, Arthur Rose, told me that the way you do that is you always keep something unfinished in the studio. And I've always done that. Uh, uh, but I've come, I'm mature enough now to know that I have to take some time off, you know, to get myself together. Uh, during the COVID thing, I did a couple of paintings, but then I took some time off because you have to think about it. Uh, and so you have to, no, you have to refuel yourselves at times. And sometimes you come back like the, and then things motivate you. Like I, like the George Floyd thing. Oh, and, uh, and if you notice, there's a poster here about, about, um, that was online about marching without voting is just a parade. I love that phrase. Mm-hmm. I, I heard it. Uh, by from a uh, a preacher on on Sunday, 
who was doing that and motivating folks to get out. And he'd say that every Sunday to his congregation. And I just sat down and figured out a way to make that a visual object. And it's, and it's sold a lot online. That uh, leads right to a question that I want to ask you based on something you mentioned a minute ago. One of your teachers, you say he taught you how to think about what you're thinking about. And he taught you ideas and ways to convert ideas into images. I don't want to put you on the spot, but can you share with us some of some thoughts along those lines about converting ideas into images? Because as visual artists, that's the essence of what we do. And it's different for each of us because we work, we have different techniques and we work in different media, but, but for you, what does that mean? And what's your process? The the key word is metaphor. I mean, you have to really kind of understand how do you create a metaphor that says so much in just uh, a few words and not words, but a few images. Um, I did a painting at, uh, and you see it on the wall back there. It's about um, uh, emerging. It's about a flag, about a target, and about a person emerging out of the kind of darkness or the kind of place where he is. And what you do is you do the metaphor. But what I like to do is leave spaces so that the viewer can fill it in. You know, you don't tell people everything. You don't insult the intelligence of your viewer. And so I pay a lot of attention to how do I create metaphors. Now, you know, you take a tree and put it on a hill by itself, and that creates the feeling of loneliness. But there are other ways to create loneliness. And so when I look back on my life growing up in the South, um, and I worked at a, at a theater. I was a projectionist, one of the first black projectionist in this little town of St. Stephen's. And the way you could be a projectionist in black is that nobody sees you. You're way up in the booth and nobody sees you. And so I, you know, saw all those early movies and things like that. And it really helped me because I was always thinking about how do you say something with fewer words or with fewer images? How do you imply things? And, and to me, that's what art is all about, is implications. It's, 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 it, what I found is sometimes what you don't say is just as important as what you say. Or how you say it is just as important as what you say. And so I've always looked at that. So at this theater, for instance, um, I worked, and at night, I'd have to walk home about a mile. And I had to walk, and, and the light ended where the, the last White House white person lived. And I would go into this tunnel of darkness, and there was a big ditch there. And each night the movie ended at 11, um, 15, I'd be gone. And I remember I had to go down this dark road and then make this turn and go down another dark road and I could see my house down there because my mom always left the light on in the dining room. And I'd walk down. And, you know, this was a time when black kids could just disappear. 
And uh, I remember getting popcorn and went downstairs, got some popcorn. And one of the girls said, hey, Leo, how are you doing? I said, hey, thank you. And she gave me the popcorn. And, and there were these white guys, high school kids. They said, what did you call them? What did you say to him? And I never saw that before. And so I never came down for popcorn. Ironically, when my book was, was, was written and I had a book signing in my hometown, this woman came up with gray hair. And she said, hi, Leo, how you doing? He said, this is Jean. You know, I worked at the theater. I said, you did? She said, yeah, I worked at the theater. I said, you know, you could have gotten me killed. She said, well, I don't believe in anything <laughs> like that. I said, that's you, but what about me? He, she said something that I didn't know. She said, I remember touching you on your shoulder, and I can feel your muscles tense. I didn't, I didn't even know that. So that was my reaction. And so I had to walk down this dark road. And these guys like to do pranks and all of that kind of stuff. But there was one thing, and I painted about him too. I had an uncle named Silas. He was the youngest of my granduncles. He would walk the road at night about the time I got off. I did not know. I mean, he had a John Wayne walk, and I remember walking home and whistling before I got my bike, and I see that figure coming out of the mist, you know, with that John Wayne swag. And he wouldn't eat, just say, hey. I said, hey. And he'd go on by me. Where was he going? There was nothing at my hometown at that way. But the thing about it, I saw him once or twice. And when I walked down, I had the courage because I always felt that he was somewhere around. And they didn't mess with him because he had land for one. He didn't smile and jump around. And he had a gun. <laughs> and he was looking out for you. And he was looking out for me. <laughs> and he did that for our whole family. I was the oldest of, of five brothers and a sister. And, and um, he would walk by because my mom, we were living up on the road and and he was living further back from the road, but you'd see him walking across the field, and he'd just say, hey. And we'd say, hey, Uncle Silas, hey. And he's, he'd walk around right by. We just knew he was around. And so I see people see those things in my work, that kind of somebody looking out for you and, and, and helping you find your way. As I sit here and listen to you talk about stories like that, it becomes even more clear to me that I'm going to, I'm going to speak for both of us here. Neither of us have any experience like anything like that. I know. And, I know. and it's, I don't know that I would wish that upon us, but we just, it just makes me that much more clear that we just don't, we have no frame of reference. You know, that's, it's, it's funny that you should say that because in my paintings, what I want to do, is give some people a frame of reference just to let them see. I remember uh, I did very early in my career, I did young kids. Um, and I, one of my pieces that really uh, everybody talked about was always subject. It's called Blue Wall. And I was at, I had a show at, at one of the universities and the woman walked up to me and said, oh, Dr. Twiggs, I just love your children. They are so sweet looking. He said, but there's a kind of loneliness about them. He said, there's, there's something about them. They don't look happy, like happy kids. I don't see that because, you know, in the South, 
many artists do black children running around. That's that's a part of the overdue. And uh, I said, you don't? I said, I was just coming to this opening. I saw some of them running around right out there. But to me is, how do you get people to feel what you feel? How do you get the people to look at the flag and see the flag in a different way? You know, how do you get people... In my painting, sometimes I use chickens, as your Woodruff, I said, suggested that you use. So sometimes I use chickens, and sometimes I use cows, because cows are more docile. And I think by using a, 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 an image that is docile and putting it next to an image that is powerful. For instance, um, I did a series of paintings on a rooster ritual. And it had some images that looked like Ku Klux Klan images, but they were in a kind of ritual thing. And I remember growing up, my grandmother used to take a chicken and wring its neck. I thought it was horrible. But even a rooster who is supposed to have power can be rendered powerless. You see? And so I juxtapose something that is powerful against something that is not so powerful, that, is, that have no power at all, that is at the mercy of the powerful. And so you, what you hope to do is to get people to see and feel, to get in your shoes and see and feel what you feel. So your comment was very timely to me. We both did a little research on you before coming today. And we've looked at your work on your website and the, some of the galleries that show your work. And I, this is my first time seeing one in person. There's a stack behind me that are about to go to Myrtle Beach. And I can tell you, and I'm sure, as you mentioned, you want to get closer and closer earlier. Seeing them online is not going to get it done for you. <laughs> <laughs> you really, the next time a Leo Twiggs piece is in your town, you need to go see it in person. Yeah. And it's just a whole different experience being in the room with the piece than it is seeing it online. I mean, you can appreciate it online, but you won't get it until you see it in person. You know, I, I'm so glad that you said that because when I first started doing Batik and I wanted to, they, people would ask me for pictures of them and this was black and white era. And I take pictures and I had to, I learned to process black and white film because I did not get the image that, that, that I felt I should get. And I hear that all the time from people, uh, that you have to see them in person. And I think it's because photography can't process all the multicolor surfacing that you see there, or the subtleties that, that goes with all the, all the surfaces. But um, I'm pleased, and I hope people would... <laughs> go to a show and, and see them in person uh, because I've, I've had so many comments about that, that after I have a show, then even when somebody look at the book. It's a reference. It's all, that's all it is, is a reference to the work. And yeah, you're not gonna, you won't feel what, what, what was in, what you intended until you see it in person. And even though it's two dimensional, it's still not. <laughs> yeah it's definitely i mean just just looking here you can tell even from across the room that it's not paint and it 
that's why I mentioned earlier, it almost calls to you to touch it and, and feel it and connect with it. And it's, it's, um, powerful. Thank you. We're going to include some links to your work, uh, on the website, uh, the show notes for this episode. Mm -hmm. So people will be able to look at what we've been talking about. If it's all right with you, I'll snap a couple of pictures of okay. your space That's just fine. to give people a reference as to where we were. Okay. And um, we'll, we'll just, we'll make sure that people can see and find out where you, where your work will be so that if it comes to their town, they can be sure to go and check oh, it out. Thank you. Besides your instructors, as people who've influenced you and nudged you in different directions, are there other artists and perhaps other works that struck you or that you continue to think about that you find has influenced what you do? Jacob Lawrence. And I met Jacob. He came out around a gallery. So he was, you know, I met him and all of that. One of the things that always struck me about Jacob Lawrence's work is that he did small pieces. He didn't do big pieces because he worked in, in gouache and, and, and some other media. But he was able to capture what I call the usness in us. I don't know how else to explain that. Um, you know, African-Americans, um, Africans were brought over to this country. They assimilated in the country and they kept some things from their African heritage and they mixed it with, which is that's how spirituals and jazz and all that stuff was born. And what happened in jazz and spirituals is you see some of the usness in us. Always think about uh, James Brown made a record said, I don't want nobody giving me nothing. Open up the door. Huh. And I'll get it myself. Huh. I tell him, I said, what does that mean? Huh. I remember growing up with my mom and somebody comes in and says something. And my mom said, huh. And walks out of the room. And she's expressing displeasure, whatever, just by saying the word, huh. And so th that's called the usness in us. And one of the things that I tried to do um, with my work is to always not look away, is to always try to find the usness in us. And there are, I remember I, I had a painting that that won an award in Atlanta or years, years ago um, when I first started. And I came back from Georgia, I think, on the bus. And I, the bus came into the station, and there was this man sitting on the suitcase just as if he was walking out of my painting. You know, to me, when you can walk around and see images from your work, it just lets you know that you're on a good path. And that's to me is what, you know, for instance, late in the afternoon when I see African-American kids running around playing and I see the shape of their heads. And I see that in my painting as well. Then I, I know I'm on the right track, so to speak, that I'm speaking the truth to something that I know. And that's important to me. So what is next for you? What, what, are you, what are you working on now? What is, what is coming up for you work-wise? Well, I'm, I'm doing the, the painting for the, the seminary, mm -hmm. the seminary uh, in Arlington, Theological Seminary. It's 
Episcopalian. And it's interesting to me because where I lived, where I grew up, I knew that I was in the middle of a, of a plantation because the church where the plantation owners went was still there, 1758. And that church was still there, and it was Huguenots, and then it went Anglican, and then now it's Episcopalian. And I used to see that church. It was like an elegant thing. We couldn't go in it. I had never been in it. But I could see it, and it was just at the end of the road. There's a, there's a road that ran all the way from, when you come from Charleston, I don't know whether, wait, wait, did you come uh, 26? We came kind of back roads. Okay, because there's a Highway 52. And Highway 52, it runs through my hometown. But there's a place you go there named Bono. Bono, of course, is a French name. So the French Huguenots and, of course, the French settled that area. And uh, there's a road that runs from Bono almost straight and ends at that church. And that church was on the banks of the Santee River. And all that area, they, 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 even the rice paddies, uh, uh, the places where they let water, and it's all down there. Now it's growing up. You don't know that that church is on the banks of the river. I wanted to go inside. Always wanted because my mom always told me that my grandmother said my great grandmother, whose name was Sarah, was a servant. She was she when freedom came, she was a thirteen, a missy girl they called it, and that she used to take care of the plantation owners' kids when they were in church and. My mom told me that story over and over again, that she was in that building and that she took care of the slave owner's kids up there. She was a servant. I always wanted to go into church to see what, was, what it was like in there. And so finally I had a little book signing right outside the church, and a woman said, I said, I have seen that church all my life. She said, you want to go in? I said, yeah. And she took me in the church. And it's old, so it had sports that pulled the church together to keep it from uh, falling apart in hurricanes. And I looked around, and I, you know, the interior was like the church of the uh, 1700s. Um, but I didn't see a balcony. And I looked around, and there was no balcony. And then on one of those supports that they pulled the walls together, they pushed it to pull the walls together. I saw a curtain up there, and and when I walked out in this entrance, I saw a small stair, and I walked up the stair, and there it was, very small balcony, as small as just as small as this area where I have here in my studio, and you know I was overwhelmed because when you went up there. You saw that you could have two or three kids and a caretaker, and you overlooked everybody down there. And I had to call and tell my brothers about it, about being in the space where our great-grandmother probably stood and sat and served. That's crazy to think that you're doing an art piece for a church that you were never allowed to go in. (laughs) 
that's but, that's nuts. Uh, but yeah, it's the it's the denomination, mm-hmm. you know, it's the Episcopalians. Uh, but see, the Episcopalian Church, um, when they bought the first painting about George Floyd, and that's a part of that that uh, celebration when they get their two hundredth anniversary celebration. But to me, the redemption is that the leader of the Episcopalian Church now is a black man named Curry. Mm. You remember he did the uh, the, the wedding of uh, the princess. He did uh, of 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 the prince. The last wedding that was done. Oh, um, Prince Harry and yeah, Meghan Markle. Markle. Oh, right. He spoke at it, and it was so powerful that it got a lot of press. That was a big deal. Very big deal. Yeah. And people didn't know him from Adam's house cat. But after he spoke, it was something that was very, very meaningful. So I had that connection from old Episcopalian to revive Episcopalian, or enlightened Episcopalian. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So that the church that you're doing the painting for then is there in St. Stephen's? Oh no, this is the National Church in the National Church in Arlington, Arlington, Virginia. Yeah, Arlington, Virginia. This right. is the seminary, right? That trained priests, and I and they came and they talked with me about what they felt uh, they wanted to to do, and I had the the president of the of the of the uh, of the seminary come down and talk. And so it was just a very heartwarming experience, and I'm looking forward to starting the painting. I haven't even started. I'm just doing research on it and thinking about it. I like to think, let things marinate in my mind before I, before I do it. But your painting will be hanging in a, in a house of metaphors, and you're, you have an opportunity to align whatever metaphor you come up with for this image is going to provoke a lot of thought. Yeah, that's true. I'm glad you say that's very insightful because right opposite will be the painting I did of the death of George Floyd. Uh, I did a painting called the death of George Floyd and I don't know that anybody, it hasn't even been published a lot. And the reason it hasn't is because it was purchased and it's there almost immediately after I did it. And people ask me, well, where is it now? I didn't have a chance to look at it myself, but so much because it was it it went so quickly. But I'm glad that it went there because between George Floyd and what I can do will be a kind of testimony to how far I have come, how far we have come, and what the road ahead can be like. Dr. Twiggs, thank you so much for being on the show today. You know, before we wrap this up, we always like to ask a question of our of our guests. One final question. And what we want to know from you is one thing that you are looking forward to. I'm looking forward to starting that painting <laughs> <laughs> that I've been commissioned to do for the seminary. I would say that before this conversation began the thing that i was going to list as the thing i was looking forward to was going to the local ice cream parlor but that's been trumped quite easily by 
me looking forward to seeing what that painting looks like because I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since you mentioned it. So that's definitely what I'm looking forward to Well, also. I thought you were about, about to take my idea. When, so my, my thing I'm looking forward to is someday in my life getting a chance to see your work in person on the wall. Wow. And I don't know when that's going to be. I don't know where it's going to be. But someday it's happening. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at some of it now. But it's, you know, leaning against the sofa and it's, you know, it's, it's in transit. I want to yeah. see it hung on the wall and I want to be able to go from one to the next to the next. Yeah. That's what I want. Looking forward to that. I'm flattered. Thank you so much. So where can we find some of your uh, information online? I know you have a website. I have a website. I just tell folk, Google me. Uh-huh. <laughs> because I remember going to Google a couple of weeks ago and the whole f- first page you know, it's stuff that, because they've got stuff that I've done in the past, stuff that I'm doing now. When my website uh, was developed, I was the, the guy who did it, who also laid out my book. He said, I'm going to put some links to some things online. And that's how you you see the video. And I thought that was a great idea. We can't thank you enough for letting us come to visit with you today. Uh, you. We've been fine. looking forward to this for weeks. And uh, you were nice enough to respond to my out of the blue uh, <laughs> request. And here we are. So we, we thank you. Thank you for having me. Creativity in Motion is produced by the somewhat sketchy team at Penumbra Entertainment. If you have questions, please send them to us at creativity at penumbra-ent.com. And if you like this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Also, please follow Penumbra Entertainment on social media. On Facebook and Instagram, we are Penumbra Films. If you'd like to get the show notes for this or any other episode, including information on Dr. Twiggs and his book, as well as his artwork, please make your way to our website at penumbra-ent.com. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Creativity in Motion podcast. In the meantime, don't forget, great ideas are the fuel of progress. your music like your music thank you because you know, that's everything i mean people start listening to that and they, that gets them in the groove doesn't it, <laughs> it does <laughs>